How do you feel great on vacation? Like really good? Easy, you go to Aruba. You'll spend your time relaxing on cool white sand beaches and floating in healing blue water. You'll immerse yourself in natural wonder and find your center on an island where things move at your speed. You won't just feel great, you'll feel relaxed, renewed, and ready for life. That's the Aruba effect. Plan your trip at aruba.com. And now the stage is clear for Wyndham Clark. Yeah! Who takes down all the stars in Los Angeles to win the United States Open. This past Sunday marked the end of the 2023 U.S. Open Golf Championship. Underdog Wyndham Clark claimed his first major victory. But that feel-good sports story wasn't the one dominating the golf world. It was a different announcement made two weeks earlier. The PGA Tour, European Tour and rival Live Golf Circuit have announced a landmark agreement to merge and form a commercial entity to unify the sport. This is On Point. I'm Meghna Chakrabarty, and that announcement is the one that shocked the sports world. The merger between the prestigious PGA Tour and the one-year-old Live Golf had been unimaginable. Upstart Live is financed by the Saudi Arabian government. The PGA and Live had spent the past year in what could most charitably be called a very contentious relationship. After all, for Live Golf to become the prestigious league it hoped to be, it needed talent. And to find that talent, it went poaching in the PGA. Over the past year, the league offered more than $100 million in signing bonuses per player to woo top golfers like Phil Mickelson and Dustin Johnson. And the money wasn't just reserved for the best players either. You see, the PGA Tour isn't like the NBA, where the league's minimum salary was more than $950,000 this past year in basketball. The PGA Tour sees its athletes as independent contractors, and the players earn their money based on their success on the golf course. Live Golf offered something different, a minimum payout of $120,000 for the player who finished dead last. So some golfers saw that as a great opportunity for financial stability that's not always promised on the PGA Tour. But as players signed with Live Golf, the PGA Tour made sure that they knew it was not happy with the decision. Just half an hour after the first ball was struck in the first event of this Live Golf series, the PGA Tour issued a memo to its members, and it starts off with talking about players who have decided to turn their backs on the PGA Tour by willfully violating a regulation. It says that simultaneous to the players receiving this memo, the following players are all banned from playing on the PGA Tour, suspended and no longer eligible to play in the PGA Tour. And then it lists 17 players, including the likes of Phil Mickelson, Dustin Johnson, Ian Poulter, Lee Westwood, Sergio Garcia. The PGA had indeed banned some of the biggest names in golf. PGA Tour Commissioner Jay Monahan defended his decision, questioning instead the ethics of the players and the motivation of Live Golf. How big of an issue is it uh, where the money is coming from as far as that tour? Yeah. Well, it's, it's, it's not an issue for me because I don't work for the Saudi Arabian government. But 
it probably is an issue for players that chose to go and take that money. And I think you have to ask yourself the question, Jim, why? Why is this group spending so much money, billions of dollars, recruiting players and chasing a concept with no possibility of a return? Why? Keep that question in mind. Eleven golfers, including Phil Mickelson, filed an antitrust lawsuit against the PGA Tour to challenge their suspension last August. Live Golf soon joined the lawsuit before the PGA Tour filed its own countersuit, alleging that Live Golf interfered with existing contracts with its players. So this is what we mean by a contentious year. And that brings us back to two weeks ago, when the Jay Monahan, who not that long ago had questioned the finances and ethics of both the Saudi Arabian government and several golfers themselves, that Jay Monahan suddenly seemed to disappear. In his place materialized a different Jay Monahan, one who opened his arms wide to embrace the same live golf he once so despised. To be able to say that we're now on a path of, of unification, to be able to have a partner that can invest back in the fan experience uh, is very exciting. To quote the old Jay Monahan, why? The PGA Live merger didn't eliminate the ethical questions that Monaghan seemed to have forgotten that he'd raised. Instead, they came from political leaders such as Chris Murphy, Democratic senator from Connecticut. This is a watershed moment, and I think we need to treat it as such. Listen, let's be honest. The Saudis aren't buying the PGA because they love golf. They're buying the PGA because they want to erase their dizzying campaign of political repression, and it's disappointing. So what Chris Murphy is getting at, a shorthand version would be, Saudi Arabia is sports washing. Well, what exactly is sports washing? And what's going on here with golf? Well, joining us now is Sarath Ganji. He's the director of the Autocracy and Global Sports Initiative and the 2023 Next Gen National Security Fellow at the Center for a New American Security. Sarath, welcome to On Point. Hello, Meghna. Thanks so much for having me. Okay, so first of all, I'm not the uh, most breathless follower of golf. So can you tell me a little bit more about um, what we know about how this deal went down and why all of a sudden? Because it really did seem to shock the sports world. It's a great question. And in fact, a lot of America's professional golfers are asking the exact same one. We came to find out about this blockbuster framework agreement on the morning of June 6th after the head of the PGA, Jay Moynihan, and the head not of Live Golf, but of the Saudi Public Investment Fund, Yasser Arumayan, both appeared in CNBC's Squawk Box to announce the deal. Uh, at that point, a few players had gotten phone calls maybe the day before. Um, Cameron Smith, the Australian who had won the Open Championship the year prior and was one of the players, as you correctly named, who had received a $100 million signing bonus to move over to Live Golf, got a quick phone call. Um, but 
even Greg Norman, the CEO of Live Golf, uh, was kept out of the loop. Based on reporting that we've subsequently received from the Wall Street Journal, the Financial Times, the New York Times, we know that there were roughly seven weeks worth of secret meetings taking place primarily in Europe, uh, first Italy, and then I believe in the UK, between Jay Moynihan, between Yasser Arumayan, and then a couple of uh, Americans um, who you might consider deal makers and were involved in the process of trying to figure out how you can tie the PGA after such a contentious, heated debate and and uh, uh, litigious rivalry with Live Golf together with the Saudi Public Investment Fund. And in fact, it's telling that at that sit down on Squawk Box, uh, the two of them never described what they had reached as a signed, sealed, and delivered deal, nor did they call it a merger. For them, it's a framework, which uh-huh. means there's still a lot of things that are, are up in the air, and hopefully we'll, we'll find that out. Certainly, uh, there are Senate committees in the Department of Justice looking into it, um, and it's also telling that um, we don't quite have a timeline on how all of this will come together yet. Yeah, but so point taken, um, there's still much to be uh, hashed out in terms of the quote-unquote new partnership. But nevertheless, the point is, is that uh, Jay Monahan sat next to uh, a, you know, a representative of, the, of Saudi's uh, sovereign wealth fund, whereas the same PGA commissioner not that long ago was basically saying, I would never take the Saudis' money. What a stunning turnaround, right? <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, it's impressive, too, that this framework agreement, um, ostensibly what has been communicated to the public is that the PGA Tour, which represents North America, and the European PGA, which is also known as the DP World Tour, represents Europe, uh, are are joining hands into a, a new company. And as part of that new company, it's not... Uh, live that will be involved, but purely the public investment fund as the uh, primary, maybe even sole financial backer. And so that seems to be the basis of this agreement, which um, underlies the uh, the way in which we, we hear the hypocrisy coming out of those who are now trying to defend this deal after being so seemingly morally opposed to Saudi money and golf to begin with. Okay. So let's talk more about the public investment fund. It's also referred to as Saudi Arabia's sovereign wealth fund. It's about $620 billion in assets, uh, according to ESPN. Tell us more about that and why it's so important to understand or, or, or why it's so critical to know that the funding for this new partnership is coming from that particular financial source. Yeah, The de facto ruler of Saudi Arabia is Mohammed bin Salman. Um, He is the son of the current king, uh, and he rose to power um, by bumping elbows, muscling out a lot of potential rivals. The famous story of uh, hundreds of business persons and and potential uh, family competitors being detained in the Ritz-Carlton as he took control of major governmental institutions um, certainly comes to mind from back in, I believe it was 2017, 2018. Um, that's relevant because the Public Investment Fund, which is the, the key financial vehicle for foreign investments on behalf of the state, ends up being a really important instrument for uh leveraging Saudi Arabia's hydrocarbon wealth and its global financial prowess in ways that can exert influence abroad. Um, In the 
broader context of the Gulf monarchies, and here I'm thinking not just about Saudi Arabia, but Qatar and the UAE, um, you often see not one, but maybe a, a few sovereign wealth funds, one of which might be devoted towards spending internally within the country, another towards spending externally. The public investment fund does both, but it's drawn a lot of attention in recent years uh, as part of a broader strategy, according to Saudi Vision 2030, the country's guiding blueprint, uh, to economically diversify. And then along the way, we've seen PIV invest in properties like Meta, Live Nation, Disney, Uh and of course, the major sporting properties now. Okay, so but that could be read as just diversifying, as you're saying. But there's something implied in its investment in sports that leads us to this question of sports washing, right? So we're going to get to that more when we come back from a quick break. This is On Point. Support for the On Point podcast comes from Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. Ditch the busy work and use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash On Point. That's Indeed.com slash On Point. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. The world's clean energy future relies on ancient elements still in the ground. Without mining, there will not be a clean energy transition. But pulling them out of the ground comes at an environmental and human cost. Mining is intrusive, but the results are the building blocks for products that we use every single day. I'm Meghna Chakrabarty. Join me for Elements of Energy, Mining for a Green Future. Five consecutive episodes right here. So make sure you're following this podcast. You're back with On Point. I'm Meghna Chakrabarty, and Sarath Ganji joins us today. He's director of the Autocracy and Global Sports Initiative. And we're talking about Saudi Arabia, the PGA Live Golf Partnership, and sports washing. Um, you know, Sarath, uh, <laughs> we could spend the entire hour on the crazy details of the announcement that happened between the PGA and Live Golf. We're not going to do that, but there's one more detail I just want to, like... Uh, share with with listeners. This comes from uh, uh, ESPN's reporting because it's just so wild uh, that one of the deal makers, Sarath, that you had mentioned earlier that uh, made this happen between Liv and PGA uh, was a gentleman named James Dunn III. And what's so crazy about this is that he, Dunn, is one of the founders of Sandler O'Neill and Partners that used to have an office at the top of the World Trade Center. And his company lost 40% of its employees when the planes crashed into the World Trade Center on 9-11. Uh, and of course, what, 15 of the 19 hijackers that day were Saudi. And Dunn would have been in the building except for the fact that uh, that day he um, was at a Bedford Golf and Tennis Club trying to qualify for the U.S. mid-amateur uh, tournament. So, I mean, the the sort of uh, folds upon folds of strange relationships in this story are just crazy, don't you think, Sarath? Absolutely. Uh, Dunn was uh, 
reportedly a, a close uh, associate, maybe even a friend of Rory McIlroy, the uh, Irish golfer who's currently the world number three. He received a text from Dunn the night before the blockbuster announcement on June 6th about the merger. Uh, the following morning, he got uh, a phone call from Dunn. McElroy did, in which he learned about the news just before it came down. The day after that, Roy was in Canada as part of a competition, gave a 30-minute press conference in which he essentially resigned himself to the fact of Saudi money and sports and described himself as a sacrificial lamb. Rory has been one of the biggest mouthpieces in defense of the PGA. That goes back to 2020, 2021, when we first heard about the possibility of an upstart golf tour being funded by the Saudis. Uh, his moral line very much aligned with what you heard from Dunn, as you just quoted and, and reported as well as what we've heard from Moynihan. And then uh, in a matter of seven weeks, somehow uh, uh, shooting a, a round of 18 uh, can change moral minds that quickly. Wow. Money talks. Okay. So um, let's get back to this uh, issue of sports washing. As you, you said earlier, it's about um, countries using their ample funds, no matter how those funds have been uh, generated, to use sports to influence their their sort of global reputation. What is it about sports in general that makes it such a um, a fertile field for this kind of effort? And I keep I keep wondering that because I look at your title, Sarath, and you're the director of the Autocracy and Global Sports Initiative, um, which I didn't even think would have to exist, and yet the very center does. So what's going on here? <laughs> right here we are. Um, Sports washing is uh, one of those terms that has come up over the last few years to try to characterize uh, the role of what feels like a different kind of financial investor in the world of sports and entertainment. Um, if we think of sports and entertainment as a, a singular sector, there are two qualities about it that make it really attractive to investors in general, but to autocratic investors in particular. The first is its high visibility. We know about the English Premier League. We know about the World Cup. We know about the Dustin Johnsons and the Cameron Smiths and the Phil Mickelsons of the world. These are all leagues and franchises and players and nine-figure broadcasting and sponsorship contracts that have global reach. And that visibility is attractive for those who might have dirty, stained reputations and are looking to distract audiences from those stains by linking themselves with highly positive brands, ones that, um, though this is highly debatable, uh, are disassociated from the dirtiness of politics, as so many people uh, are want to believe it is. Um, so that's one piece of it, the high visibility. But just because something is highly visible doesn't mean you can get a crack at it. Not everyone can spend billion-dollar sums to get into the game. And even if they could, there might be restrictions in the way. So that's the second piece uh, of what makes the sports and entertainment sector so attractive is the low barriers to entry. These are generally uh, unregulated or underregulated environments where uh, in the context of, say, the Premier League, as long as you have the money, it's not too difficult to pass the director's and owner's test that governs to what extent you are uh, either a 
private equity firm or a sovereign wealth fund or a sports management firm linked to an autocratic regime, mm-hmm. um, in the case of the UAE, Qatar, and Saudi Arabia. And so you have access and you have the visibility uh, making sports and entertainment so attractive. And I would just note that that's not unique, those two attributes, to sports entertainment. We see it in uh, the sectors of healthcare and higher education, the media and academia, even culture and arts with big brands like the Louvre playing a role in the public history memorialization and monumentalization initiatives of the Gulf monoc- mm. uh, of aut- autocrats. So, yeah, so let me that. just so, so you've given us re- some really interesting examples in other sectors outside of sports. But, uh, I mean, my producer John pointed this out the other day that uh, we don't say entertain wash, right, when the Saudi public investment fund in, invests in, you know, Hollywood movies or, or tech wash when they're when they're buying up companies or offering venture funds for for uh, folks or art wash. We don't say art wash when the Louvre d- does something like this. What is it about sports and the role that it plays in people's lives that makes it so unique in this context? A part of it has to do with, uh, in many ways, the manner in which sports is, you can say, critical infrastructure, a critical sector. Um, There's that tremendous uh, docuseries on Netflix, uh, Sunderland Till I Die, which Mm. shows the role of uh, sports in the local economy uh, of Sunderland, as well as just the local social fabric. Um, Thinking here about Robert Putnam and social capital, sports is a a way of delivering uh, that social capital to communities and linking them, stitching them together. So there's that piece of it. Um, But it's also uh, just how uh, widespread, how considerable the reach of the sport is to the point that uh, the influencer, the the global figure with the largest social media following is not a head of state. It's uh, a football player, Cristiano Ronaldo, who's now currently playing in uh, Saudi Arabia. (laughs) And so it's quite telling that uh, it's these athletes who end up serving as influencers, but when paired with, say, autocratic money, become unofficial spokespeople for foreign governments. Okay. So you have just raised the perfect example that um, allows us to dive into um, another deal that the Saudis made with one of the most popular athletes in the world. Because you had mentioned Ronaldo, now playing in the Saudi Pro League, uh, also Karim uh, Benzema as well, which is is fascinating enough. Uh, Folks, we're about to just like tell you a story, just Prepare to be have your minds blown, okay? Because I it, it blew my mind. Because another example that comes out of the world of soccer is the current king of football himself, World Cup champion Lionel Messi. Now, the Saudi club Al-Hilal reportedly made Messi a three-year, $1.6 billion offer to play with them. Now, Messi turned down Al-Hilal and instead jetted over to the United States, joining Major League Soccer's Inter-Miami. However, Messi didn't completely snub the Saudis. As it turns out, Leo Messi does have an actual official partnership with Saudi Arabia. Now, this is Karim Zidane. He's an investigative journalist focusing on the intersection of sports, power, and politics. And he co-reported a story for The New York Times that discovered Lionel Messi has a contract with Saudi Arabia's tourism authority. The contract really revealed a very interesting and rare 
insights into how Saudi Arabia operates and how it is willing to strategize and use its wealth to burnish its image. So in this case, really, Messi's contract is worth about $25 million over three years. And really, it's $25 million for very little, right? It's a few commercial appearances, a handful of social media posts, and vacations to the kingdom with his family. $25 million to take vacations and post on social media. According to the details of the contract, Messi receives about $2 million for taking his family on vacation to Saudi Arabia. And he's got a choice. One vacay a year lasting five days or two trips a year lasting three days each. And according to Zidane's reporting, the travel expenses and five-star accommodations were to be paid by the Saudi government for Messi and up to 20 family members and friends. Lionel Messi also gets bags of money for those social media posts about Saudi Arabia. But he can't just post whatever he wants. Lionel Messi has chosen to self-muzzle in this contract. He cannot post or say anything that might tarnish Saudi Arabia's image. Despite the fact that this is a country that has faced widespread and well-documented human rights uh, concerns and abuses, right? So this is a very, very rare glimpse inside how this kingdom uses its wealth to sort of enlist marquee athletes. And it's very clear that they're doing so not just simply to build their sports empire, but to actually fuel other sectors of their economy, including tourism. All told, even though Messi isn't playing soccer in Saudi Arabia right now, Zidane says that doesn't change the reality that one of the world's most loved athletes is still a part of Saudi Arabia's sports-washing process. Who would have guessed a few years ago that players such as Ronaldo and Messi would even consider playing in the kingdom? And Karim Benzema, like Messi in the end did not decide to play in Saudi Arabia. That is true. He ended up going to Inter-Miami for a deal that appears to have been actually less than what he was offered at Saudi Arabia. So there is still hope to believe that Saudi Arabia won't necessarily be able to buy up the entire world just by offering the most amount of money. But it's getting pretty damn close, I think. It's getting close. Messi might have used the the excuse, or actually might have been very valid, that his family didn't want to live in Saudi and they preferred living in the United States for the foreseeable future. I mean, that's very, very possible. At the end of the day, he's still a Saudi pitchman. He can now play in the United States and still promote Saudi Arabia. It's a win-win for them. That's Karim Zidane, investigative journalist focusing on the intersection of sports, power, and politics. He's also author of the Sports Politica newsletter. Now, Sarath, so that is, again, just a mind-blowing example to me coming out of the world of soccer. We're, you know, we, we started with the the Live Golf PGA partnership. But where else in the in the world of sports do we see um, Saudi Arabia's use of its public investment fund um, reaching into? Yeah, alongside uh, global soccer and global golf, uh, PIV has made a number of investments in more broad entertainment properties. Again, referring back to this entertainment and sports sector across uh-huh. the globe. So Live Nation, which puts on concerts. Of course, if you're a Taylor Swift fan, you know about the conundrum, the uh, fiasco with Ticketmaster, um, some of which is being investigated uh, by Congress now. Uh, Live Nation was uh, part of that uh, buyout deal. Um, 
You also have uh, Disney, the parent company of ESPN, uh, in which Piv has a, a major stake or a, sorry, a, an important financial stake. Um, also Meta, uh, the parent company of Facebook and Instagram. Uh, it's interesting that that story that Kareem and Tariq did in the New York Times includes a really gorgeous picture, <laughs> back turned, of Lionel Messi looking out uh, at a Saudi sunset uh, as part of that contract. And so that's uh, something that he can post on Instagram which it turns out the public investment fund uh, has a stake in. Um, and then, of course, uh, Newcastle, which is uh, a soccer team in northeast uh, UK, um, is 80% owned by the public investment fund. Mm, okay. I also see uh, that, for example, there's Saudi money in Formula One, perhaps entering boxing. Um even the NBA, there's some reporting here that as of December of last year, the NBA has decided to allow sovereign wealth funds, pension funds and endowments to buy stakes in basketball teams in the United States. Now, Saudi Arabia hasn't announced any interest in them yet, but that seems to be a significant change here in the United States. It is. Uh, the NBA in recent years um, has entertained potential expansion plans, so bringing a couple of new teams maybe into the NBA. Also, they're considering shortening the season, but maybe uh, implementing a, a type of mid-season knockout tournament uh, in the fashion that you see with major soccer leagues in, in Europe. And so more capital is going to be needed. And the way to raise that capital is to broaden the potential pool of financial investors who might come in. And of course, sovereign wealth funds are part of that. Um, it's important to note that uh, with the internationalization of sports in general, and of course the NBA in particular, it's not as if the NBA hasn't been in hot water before when it comes to dealing with uh autocratic regimes. Of course, uh, the former Houston Rockets GM, Daryl Morey, getting in hot water over his support for Hong Kong that resulted in uh, Chinese media markets blacking out NBA games mm. and the NBA having to reach back out. So you even see in the NBA uh, a little bit of a history of the challenges of, of trying to uh, engage with autocratic states becoming financial players. I see. Now, you've written about how you see sports washing as part of the autocrats playbook, right? But in the case of Saudi Arabia, I mean, if that is indeed what they are doing with their uh, parts of their public in, uh, investment fund, it implies that the Saudis also think there's something that needs to be washed in their in their international reputation. Now, I could name a couple of things from an American point of view, but you know, what do you think the Saudis are trying to, to wash away? There's a, maybe two cuts to this I would provide. One thing to wash away is the broader appearance of instability in the Middle East, uh, to the extent that uh, many, say, Americans and, and Brits, uh, two big markets right there, uh, have a perception of war uh, and, and um, terrorism that mars the Middle East um, as inflated or maybe outdated as parts of that impression may be. Um, that certainly uh, hurts the tourism uh, potential of Saudi Arabia that Kareem had mentioned in his reporting for The New York Times. Um, so in order to diversify your economy, tourism might be a great sector but you've got to change outside perceptions and and the perception of instability or uncertainty is one of those. The other set of, of stains or, or dirt we might talk about uh, is the 
brutalist rule of Mohammed bin Salman. So uh, I mentioned earlier his rise to power, the number of ways he elbowed out, muscled out his competitors. Um, Alongside that, there was the uh, brutal detainment, uh, killing and dismemberment of Saudi journalist Jamal Khashoggi, who had been an opinion uh, writer for The Washington Post, so a a Saudi national journalist. um, And... uh, Saudi denials uh, ended up being rebuffed by intelligence agencies in the U.S. who found that uh, MBS absolutely gave the Mm. hit order to kill that journalist. Right. So the point being um, the hope that people won't think of the, you know, children starving to death in Yemen or the murder of Jamal Khashoggi and instead think, hey, maybe I should take a vacation in Jeddah on the Red Sea. The question is, does it work? So we're going to talk about that when we come back. This is On Point. Did you kill Marlene Johnson? I think you're one of the first people to have actually asked. From WBUR and ZSP Media, this is Beyond All Repair, a new podcast about an unsolved murder that will leave you questioning everything. Somebody should be in jail for murdering my sister. A woman who's never been believed. As long as they think I have done this, then they're not looking for who actually did this. And that's what makes it a cold case. No, it's a botched case. And a search for the truth, once and for all. Wow, it just gets more interesting. Beyond All Repair. Listen and follow wherever you get your podcasts. Be careful. You're digging in a place that's been very peaceful for a while. Do it anyway. Dig. This is On Point. I'm Meghna Chakrabarty. And I want to just give you a preview of what we're talking about tomorrow. It's going to be about the debate over whether workers should go back to the office or remote work. Should it be cut down? Now, if you're in leadership at your company, we want to hear from you. Are you requiring workers to come back into the office more? Why or why not? And how did you make that decision? You know, as an employer, what do you think are the advantages or disadvantages of remote work? Now, you can contact us through the OnPoint VoxPop app and send us your thoughts. If it's not on your phone already, just search for OnPoint VoxPop wherever you get your apps. You can also leave us a voicemail at 617-353-0683. That's for tomorrow. Today, we are joined by Sarath Ganji, director of the Autocracy and Global Sports Initiative. And we're talking about the PGA Live Deal, which is financed by Saudi Arabia and spe- specifically its sovereign wealth fund. And what it tells us or the window that it gives us into Uh, the practice of countries using sports to sports wash their reputations. Now, there's been a lot of strong reaction to the PGA Live partnership, and much of it has come from the families of victims of 9-11. Kristen Breitweiser lost her husband on September 11th, 2001, and she and other families have pointed their frustration um, at the PGA and at Live for their merger. Whether it's presidents, members of Congress, corporations in America, or the PGA Tour, uh, the 9-11 families are used to Saudi money trumping morals and murder. And in our case, the murder of our 3,000 loved ones. 
Once again, that's Kristen Breitweiser, a uh, survivor or a loved one um, who lost her husband uh, on 9-11. Now, the idea or the practice of sports washing isn't necessarily anything new. In fact, it goes way back, perhaps even to, you know, the first organized games that human beings played with each other. But perhaps one of the most pointed examples comes from 1936 and the Summer Olympics in Berlin. Lots of folks look at that as the first modern example of sports washing. And historian Susan Backrack told us what happened. After World War I, Germany was, by virtue of the Versailles Treaty, declared responsible for that terrible conflict. And as a result, it really had to work very hard to re-enter the fold of nations. For example, in the Olympic Games, Germany was not allowed to participate. In 1920, that were held in Belgium, 1924 in Paris. But 10 years later, by 1928, Distant from the end of the war, uh, Germany was allowed to participate in those games. In 1931, the International Olympic Committee decided that they were going to have the 1936 Olympics in Berlin. And then in 1933, the big controversy arises because now we have the Nazis coming to power when Hitler is appointed chancellor in in January 1933. And the Nazis had always said they hated the Olympics. In fact, they called the 1932 Olympics in uh, Los Angeles the Jew Games. So originally the Nazis themselves did not want to hold those games in Berlin. At which point, Joseph Goebbels, the Minister of Propaganda, steps in and says this is a fabulous propaganda opportunity, a way to present the new Germany to the world, and we can't turn down this opportunity. So, with the pigeons carrying a message of peace to the world, begins the event for which all Germany has been preparing for months past. For 14 days, Berlin will be the scene of the fiercest battles between 50 nations. Battles of peace. For 14 days... The way the games had been organized in this very spectacular fashion. There was a new stadium built, lavish parties. The most impressive incident in an impressive day is the arrival of the last of 3,000 runners who have brought the sacred flame 1,800 miles through seven different countries from Greece. A stalwart, fair-haired German carries the torch to the brazier and lights the fire. Nazi Germany did everything it did to hide some of the um, distasteful aspects of the regime, taking down anti-Jewish signs. It was very orchestrated in in every way possible to present the most uh, favorable face of of Germany. 100,000 spectators are present. They see the charming incident of the presentation of a bouquet to the Führer by a little girl beats him on his way to his box. They see the great parade of athletes from all over the world. Prior to the Olympics, the New York Times had covered the huge debate and controversy about whether the U.S. should even participate in these games and had been critical of racist and other oppressive aspects of the Nazi regime. 
And the coverage after the games can only be described as glowing. Maybe Germany has changed its tune, is back in the standing of good nations and, and, and so forth and so on. So it was a propaganda success. It's ironic because today, when most Americans think about the 1936 Olympics, they probably think about one person, <laughs> one American athlete who was very, very successful at those games. In the 100 meters, Jesse Owens on the far side has already beaten the world record in his first heat. So the time was disallowed as the wind was behind him. And running like the wind, he wins the final and equals the world record of 10.3 seconds. That's a great story, but it's also a very feel-good story for Americans because it sort of covers up some of the bad things that are happening in this country during the 1930s. And it also kind of flies in the face of the fact that Nazi Germany did so successfully use those games as propaganda. That's Susan Backrack, staff historian at the U.S. Holocaust Memorial Museum. And to Susan's point, in 1938, Nazi propagandist filmmaker Leni Riefenstahl made a film about the Berlin Olympics. And of course, the very next year, in 1939, World War II began. So, Saraf, what is your take on whether sports washing works, whether it meets the objectives of the autocrats and autocracies uh, that seek to use sports to burnish their image. Fabulous propaganda opportunity. Wow, those words are really ringing in my head. Um, Sports washing is one part malign finance, so the money that autocrats are putting into these sports to derive leverage, and we've talked about any number of... uh, properties around the world in which the public investment fund has done so. The second piece is information manipulation. And I think the Nazi Olympics, uh, Susan's specific points around that, the narration, uh, really get into information manipulation, the ways in which you're trying to change how people perceive those stains um, on your record, your reputation, your image by way of changing the information that reaches them. I would say broadly that there's a, a kind of a mixed record around sports washing, but you really have to parcel out what it, it means to sports wash. Um, the 1936 Olympics uh, was a, an instance of hosting an event, right? Mm-hmm. And certainly last year's World Cup in Qatar was the same way, but more advanced forms of sports washing include broadcasting sporting events overseas and then sponsoring sporting properties abroad and then of course in the context of live and newcastle owning properties right now as you move up that maturity model what you find is there's a little bit more anecdotal evidence of success when it comes to sports washing. So here's what I mean. Uh, In the context of the 2018 russian world cup and this is a story that kareem has spoke to in the past um, On the very first day of the World Cup, which was hosted in Russia, you had uh, the host playing, ironically, Saudi Arabia. During that game, the Kremlin dropped the announcement that it was raising the nation's retirement age. Meanwhile, a year before this uh, uh, game transpired, uh, Putin issued a presidential decree preventing protests and demonstrations in the host cities. And so what was a deeply unpopular 
uh, legislative move um, on the part of the Duma uh, was effectively buried in the news cycle, as well as just the emotions and revelry of the moment of being a Russian hosting the World Cup. And then also for those who wanted to protest and tried to protest, either they were fearful of being detained or they came out and protested and you saw hundreds of arrests. Um, And so that's an instance when um, dissent was was circumscribed and a couple of months later that law passed. Hmm. Sports washing worked. Um, Maybe the flip side of that, though, is if you're trying to bury the fact of investing in sports for the sake of washing your reputation, it's interesting that the number of news articles, just based on a simple LexisNexis search, uh, show that Qatar, the UAE, and especially Saudi Arabia are being tagged with the title of sports washer Mm. more in recent years than ever before. Certainly 2021 and 2022, uh, that linkage exploded in the media. And so it's as if, in some instances, the bright light of sports is actually shining upon the the stains, the dirt in Saudi Arabia's backyard and autocrats' backyards more generally, even more strongly. Mm, interesting. Maybe another example, perhaps not so much a sports washing, but sports distraction, since you had mentioned Russia, was uh, the 2014 Olympic Games in Sochi. Uh, Putin's invasion of Crimea happened at exactly the same time, right? So, um, mm-hmm. but but you know... Given the sort of more mature uh, models that you talked about of what sports sports washing can develop into, I have to ask, how do those steps, how are they different from what the United States does? Because we have to be honest here. The U.S. is perhaps one of the best (laughs) in the world (laughs) at using its teams and its athletes as, you know, uh, informal and sometimes formal ambassadors for the United States and, you know, um, and our so-called values and our abilities, etc. So people may think, you know, more of Tom Brady than they do of, I don't know, the United States military involvement in pick your country. Do do you see what I'm saying? Like, how is it different from what uh, America does? (laughs) <laughs> Such a good point. Uh, sports washing is an equal opportunity employer. That means that large and small countries alike, autocratic and democratic ones, advanced industrialized versus emerging economies, they can all sports wash. But what's unique about a context like the United States is that as an open society versus more of a closed autocratic society, there are certain checks by non-governmental spaces that make sports washing a really difficult practice to implement. So let me give you a a quick example. In 2015, uh, Senators John McCain and Jeff Flake came out with a report about paid patriotism, whereby the Department of Defense, over a four-year period, had spent at least $10 million on advertisements and marketing at the big five sports leagues, but in particular the National Football League, to promote its properties, and more broadly, its mission. You can easily see that as an instance of sports washing in the midst of these so-called forever wars in Iraq and Afghanistan to have uh, the Department of Defense trying to, in essence, in effect, distract American audiences from that side of the Pentagon and instead focus uh, on reverence for service and for really cool military equipment. Very much fits in the sports washing mold. But the fact that you had 
two senators publicizing mm-hmm. this uh, through uh, a public report, hearings, uh, a press conference, and you had media outlets reporting on what they called the militarization of sports in America represents just two ways in which open society ended up quashing um, those couple hundred DOD contracts with the big five sports leagues to advertise and take their line to the public. Um, That is uh, a much easier thing to do, sports washing, in autocratic contexts that are absolutist, where you don't have free and fair elections, and therefore you're not held accountable for bad decisions, uh, regimes that are clientelist, so they get to use public funds for private foreign purposes, and uh, paternalistic. Okay. So... I wanted to close our conversation by talking about how um, the United States government is reacting to the PGA live deal, um, because as soon as it was announced, excuse me, as soon as it was announced, Senator Richard Blumenthal of Connecticut uh, was one of the uh, vocal legislators about the need to examine the deal. The subcommittee on investigation, which I chair, is essentially trying to uncover the facts about what went into this deal, who was behind it, and whether there was any improper conduct or wrongdoing, and what the structure and governance will be of the entity going forward. There are very, very few details. Now, Sarath, um, I think we should always scrutinize whenever um, the government wants to uh, investigate what is ostensibly a private sector deal. But is this different because, you know, the the public investment fund from Saudi Arabia um, actually is a state entity? It is different, absolutely. And the the closest corollary we might we have to this situation is in twenty in two thousand five two thousand six the Dubai Ports World controversy, where you had legislators shutting down um, DP World and Emirati Multinational from being able to take over a British company that at the time was managing six major American ports on the East Coast and in New Orleans. Um, initially, it was a deal that uh, the Committee on Foreign Investment in the U.S. CFIUS blessed um, after. Dubai Ports World came to them and asked for approval. It was a deal that a Republican White House blessed, and yet you had huge Republican pushback as well as Democratic pushback in the Congresses. Within close to a six-month span, the deal was quashed, and it was because uh, ports and maritime security more broadly are considered critical infrastructure. Now, at the moment, we might not consider sports critical infrastructure, but going back to what we were discussing regarding Sunderland and just the importance of sports to the lifeblood of so many communities around the world, maybe we should be thinking about it as critical infrastructure. Well, Sarath Ganji, he's a 2023 Next Gen National Security Fellow at the Center for a New American Security and Director of the Autocracy and Global Sports Initiative. Sarath, it's been an absolute pleasure hearing from you and learning from you. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, Magna. This was wonderful. I'm Magna Chakrabarty. This is On Point.